thank you so very much for the beautiful music this morning, which is an inspiration to us all. <clears throat> and thank you for allowing me to come and be with you today. It's a joy to be with you at any place. It's called Bear Creek. I tell you, I like that. And uh, and uh, the only thing I'd do differently if I were you is I'd have a mascot in this church, and I'd bring me a real bear, and that that would be a lot of fun. And uh, then Baylor couldn't claim all of the accolades for their bears down there. But uh, thank you, for Pastor, for allowing me to come. Your pastor has uh, been a treasured friend for many, many years in the ministry. That means that you hear about each other occasionally. You don't get to see each other very much, but it's a privilege to renew my fellowship with him today. He is a great man of God. He's been an inspiration to me and to so many others across the years. And thank you, Pastor, for this opportunity to be with you today. I brought along Jacob Horton with me. He's right over here. Uh, he's the handsome one of the two. And uh, I, I brought along him because uh, he is assigned to me so that the old man will show up where he's supposed to and won't trip and fall and make an idiot out of himself. And so uh, he's supposed to help me do my job, and I appreciate him. He probably came further to church today than any of you did. He came from Oregon. And uh, so uh, that's a pretty good trip to come to just to come to your church today, and and I'm grateful that he's here. I actually had to get him out of prison last night. Um, uh, he was uh, in the state penitentiary for about five hours, locked in with the prisoners there, and uh, we saw wonderfully five men come to Christ. It's an amazing ministry that uh, uh, Chaplain Gresty has there. Uh, with the prisoners, and uh, I thought, Brother Pastor, what an odd deal it was. I said, well, now, how long do I have to preach? And he said, well, you got an hour. And I thought, well, where was the last church that told you you had an hour to preach in? If I tried that in an average Baptist church, they'd throw me out of the synagogue. And so uh, I know better than to do that. I'd like for you to take your hymn book in your hand right now, if you would, uh, Oh, I'm sorry, not that one. The one right here in the Bible is the one I have in mind. It's called the Book of Psalms. And uh, we're going to look at the Gateway Psalm today for a few minutes and see what we can learn from the Word of the Lord. Now, I call it the hymn book because that's what the people of Israel sang. Uh, when they sat down to sing like we do, they had a book, and they sang from the Psalms. Now, sometimes if they were singing uh, Psalm 119, they were going to be there a while. And uh, so you just had a lot of verses there, and others are very short. But you understand that the book of Psalms, the hymn book of Israel, was written over a long period of time. And what you have preserved in the Bible from the book of Psalms is not the right order. They are, it is a compiled book. Unlike many of the books that are chronological in order, it's compiled from many different sources. There are Psalms of David there. There are Psalms of Moses there. There are Psalms written by Solomon and written by some other people. Asaph, for example, that we don't even stop to think about who in the world is that, but he wrote a bunch of them. 
And then later on, they were compiled, and this psalm, the very first psalm, was placed as a gateway psalm into the introduction to the rest of the book. We're going to see why in just a moment. So keep your Bible open all morning, if you will, and we're going to look at Psalm 1. And in the process of it, we're going to ask the question, how can your Bible come to life? Because the truth of the matter is, in the average Baptist church, Folks believe and say the right things about the Bible. Somebody says, oh, man, listen, I believe it is the infallible, inerrant word of God. Amen. Check that off, you know. And uh, uh, number two, somebody says, I I believe that it has the very words of God in it. Well, if you believe that, how come you don't read it any more than you do? If it really contains the word of God, why is it? that for the most part, the Bible is a book of black print on a white page that doesn't make any difference. I'm going to suggest a way this morning for the year 2019 that will revolutionize what the Bible means to your heart, all right? So let's look at it and see what it says. Blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the ungodly, and therefore he doesn't stand in the path of sinners, which means that he won't ultimately sit in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in that law he meditates both day and night. Well, he shall be like a tree... Planted by the rivers of water, he brings forth his fruit in his season, whose leaf also will not wither, and whatever he does is going to prosper. Now, it's not that way with the ungodly. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore, the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Now, the book of Psalms begins with a grammatical error. Can you believe that? Now, when we say the Bible is inerrant and infallible, we mean that it is inerrant when it's speaking of truth, but we don't mean it has perfect grammar. And one of the reasons that it often does not have perfect grammar is it's one of the few ways that they had of emphasizing something since they didn't have punctuation marks. There was no way to put an exclamation point at the end of something. You couldn't underline your words. This is written in Hebrew, as you know, which looks like, when you look at it at first, an inebriated chicken ran through an oil slick and then crossed the road. And you say, oh, my soul, how could anybody ever read that stuff? Matter of fact, they didn't skip any spaces between words, no spaces between lines, no spaces between paragraphs. It just all ran together. What a mess to try to read that. On top of that, there were no vowels. You just had to figure out where those went and how you said them, but they weren't there. It's a consonantal language. They have only consonants. 
my goodness, how in the world am I going to do this? And on top of that, he begins with a grammatical error. As a matter of fact, the Bible starts with a grammatical error. Did you know that? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But let me tell you something about that. The word for God there is Elohim. And that happens to be plural. In the beginning, God's created the heavens and the earth, but it is followed by a singular verb. That ain't good grammar. <laughs> and you hadn't ought to say it. But the fact of the matter is that the biblical writer knew exactly what he was doing because he wanted to get over from the very first verse of Genesis that the Bible is about God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. He is just one God, but he is three persons. You say, explain that to me. Well, I would, but then I'd be God and you'd be unhappy. And so the fact of the matter is there are a lot of things that we can't understand fully that we nevertheless believe in. The Bible makes it clear that God is one, but in three persons. And so he lose, uses the plural of God, but he follows it with a singular verb. Unbelievable, but one of the ways of emphasizing it. Here, the word blessed is ashray in Hebrew, which means multiple blessings, plural blessings. Anytime you see an I am on the end of a word in Hebrew, that means it's a plural word in the Old Testament. And so blessedness is, is the man, and that ain't good grammar either. But it really gets the point over. For example, would you rather be happy or would you rather be blessed? I don't know about you, but I'd rather be blessed. Because you see, if I'm happy, whatever it is that made me happy can be taken away from me, and guess what? I'll be unhappy. So I got this new automobile. Yes, sir. Somebody gave me a Lamborghini. <laughs> That's wishful thinking. Uh, but nevertheless, somebody gave me this Lamborghini. I'm happy with that. And so Jacob here says, can I take it for a spin? And I forget that he is but 23 years of age. And I give him the keys, and he takes off in it, and I watch at the first corner as he wipes out an 18-wheeler coming down the street and my Lamborghini is in a heap of ashes. And so what made me happy one minute makes me unhappy now. And that's the trouble with all human happiness. It tends to melt away into unhappiness. It's not true about blessedness. Blessedness is a condition of the soul that is brought on by the apparent attention of God to our human dilemma. And it doesn't matter what the difficulties are in your life, if you are blessed of God, it is permanent and it is wonderful. The blessings of God are without repentance. Oh, dear. God is gracious to us. And so he blesses us, and blessedness is in so many ways is the man who first of all doesn't do certain things. First of all, blessed is a man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the ungodly. Ah, oh, you say, got it made. 
on that one. Almost everybody I know is a Christian. It didn't say anything about Christians. Blessed is a man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly. Unfortunately, most believers are more informed by the wisdom of the world than they are by the wisdom of God. You see, the Bible says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, and my ways are not your ways. Man tends to watch too much television, read too many newspapers, be informed by whatever the wisdom of the hour is. And so very few believers even are going to give you godly counsel. So we're not talking here about believers. Well, what do you, how does it mean to, to give godly? What does it mean to be a godly counselor? What is that anyway? Well, first of all, a godly counselor does have to be a believer. Obviously, you're not going to get godly counsel about anything from somebody who's not a believer. So yes, they do have to be a believer. But second, they have to be someone who has saturated himself or herself with the word of God so that they tend to think God's thoughts after him. Now, do you think God's thoughts after him? May I make a confession to you this morning? I was born Irish. What does that mean? That means I'd like to wring your neck. If you irritate me in the slightest, We'll just step out in the parking lot after the service is over and we'll settle this the way real men should. I mean, that's the Irish way, isn't it? Unfortunately, it may be the way of the Irish, but it isn't God's way. The Bible says the wrath of man never works the righteousness of God. Oh me, what am I going to do with myself? How am I going to have the fruit of the Spirit? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, kindness. Against such there is no law. You know what's wrong with that grouping of things that that says the fruit of the Spirit? What's wrong with them is I don't have any of them naturally. I mean, I'm just as contrary to that as I can be. Oh, how will I ever experience the fruit of the Spirit? In my own life. Listen, I have to know the Word of God. I have to saturate myself in the Word of God so that I learn that the wrath of man works not the will of God. I have to learn God's way. It's not natural to me. And I'm sorry to have to tell you, it's not natural to you either. And so how are you going to do it? If you're going to be a godly counselor, first of all, you've got to be a believer. Second, you've got to be somebody who has saturated himself with the word of the Lord so that you think Bibline, you think God's thoughts after him. And number three, and this one's a really tough one, you have to be somebody who loves the object of his affection enough that he's willing to risk his friendship in order to tell him the truth. Now, I want to ask you how many people are in your life today who will tell you the truth in any circumstances? How many will risk a friendship with you 
in order to tell you the truth. Now, that's going to be a godly counselor. My mom and dad were never afraid of my friendship. They would tell me the truth. My wife is exactly the same way. She doesn't hesitate to tell me the truth. And so I'm grateful for those people because they've made a difference in my life in giving me godly counsel. Now, just put it down. The vast majority of the counsel of church people is no better than the counsel of the world. They basically will tell you the same thing. You know, I've watched that in my own life when some people have done something to me that's really been hurtful. And I've had Christians, people that I respect as believers, who've said to me, hey, man, you need to file suit on that individual. You know what the problem with that is? The Bible forbids you taking matters to the law against a brother or sister. It says don't do it. And God's not just messing with you when he says that. He means business. You don't have that privilege. In fact, the Bible goes on to say, why do you not rather just endure wrong and learn to trust God? Why do you want to get even? What virtue is there in that? That's the way of the world, not the way of God. So blessed is the man, happy is the man. To be envied is the man who doesn't listen to ungodly counsel because if you do, for long, you're going to end up standing exactly where sinners stand. You're more at rest. You're no longer walking. You're standing in one place, and you are doing the same thing that sinners do and acting like they do. And if you do that long enough, you know what else will happen? Before long, you will sit in the seat of the scornful. You're no longer even standing up. You're sitting down. And in sitting down, you are sitting in the seat of a disgruntled old man. You know, I pray all the time, dear Lord, help me not to reach old age as a disgruntled old man. And the other day, God said, you're already at old age, and so you better change the prayer a little bit. And I just said, Lord, now that I'm in this old age, prevent me from being an ugly old man. I tell you what, it's everything in the world to avoid the seat of the scornful. Don't allow yourself to be pushed into bitterness. If you're going to be bitter about every bad thing that happens to you in life, you're going to be bitter all the time because bad things happen to us in life. Folks, this isn't heaven. We're not there yet, and we don't need to expect it to look like heaven. And so, blessed is a man who doesn't listen to the counsel of the ungodly, stand where sinners stand, or get bitter like sinners get. Well, okay. If he's not going to do that, what is he going to do? Well, look at this. And his delight is in the law of the Lord. Now, if I were to say this morning, just ask you, how many of you delight in the Bible? Every one of you would lift his hand. I delight in the Bible. But if I told you that this is a typical professorial two-part question, you would say, well, if I wanted to go to school, I'd go in row. Come on. 
And uh, you wouldn't appreciate me much, but the truth of the matter is it is a two-part question, and that is how can I know that you delight in the law of the Lord? I, it's easy to say that, but how can I know you delight in it? You know, the first way you know is if a man or a woman delights in the law of the Lord, he's going to read it on a regular basis. Some years ago, when I was a college student, I was invited by Texas Baptist to go and participate in the Japan New Life Movement. I was excited about that. I didn't think I was going to get to go. And I'd been there on the ground level of setting that whole thing up, and so I had real interest in it. And when Wade Freeman called me and said, will you go and preach a revival, we've got two or three small churches over there. We don't have a big-name preacher to do it, so we need a no-name preacher to do it, would you go do it? And I said, you bet I will. And so I got over there in Japan. I had me the time of my life preaching in two or three little churches. And toward the end of that second revival, I got another call from C. Wade Freeman, and he said, Paige, I got a problem. He said, we got a church down at Shimei. And they just called us, and at the last minute, they've decided they want to have a revival. Will you go and preach? And at first I thought, no, I won't go and preach because I'm going to come home and get married. And I don't want to miss that, you know. And so I'm not going to do it. But then the Lord got all over me about it. And so I called Dr. Freeman back and I said, Dr. Freeman, that church still wants me to come. I'll do it. And so I went down there to Shimei, and I preached for four days. And then I got on that plane, uh, train, and I, I went through the countryside for about six hours and finally got to Tokyo. And when I got to Tokyo, I headed to the Okura Hotel, which was a place to stay in those days. And, and so I went to the Okura Hotel, and I walked into the lobby and walked over to the desk. And I, a man at the desk came, and he said, Yes, sir, can I help you? And I said, yes. Do you have a letter here for Paige Patterson? He said, uh, are you a resident here? And I said, well, I'm going to be. But right now, I'm interested in whether or not there's a letter for me. He said, oh, well, let's get you registered, and we'll look and see if we have a letter. And I said, no, let's don't get me registered. Let's look and see if I have a letter. Now, actually, I already knew I had a letter. The way I already knew it was I could smell the perfume that had, been, had that letter dipped in it, and uh, I could smell it the minute I walked in the door, so I knew for a fact that I had a letter. He said, you want the letter first? I said, yes. So he went back, and he brought the letter back like that. He was afraid to get very close to it because it was so pungent. And he handed me the letter, and he said, are you ready to register now? And I said, no, I want to read the letter now. And so I turned from him and went over into the lobby and I sat down, and I opened the letter for my sweetheart, to whom I was going to be married in just a few weeks. And I opened that letter up, and I read it. And when I finished reading it, you know what I did? I read it again. 
There were certain parts of it that I really liked, part about how handsome I was and all of that kind of thing that really had an appeal. And, and so I read it again. And when I had read it three times, I went over and said to the astonished manager, I'm ready to register. And so he registered me and gave me my key, and I went up to my room on the sixth floor, opened the door, and went in. You'll never guess what I did when I went in. And I read the letter again. You bet I did. It was precious to me, first of all, because I loved the sender, and second, because she knew exactly what to say that would thrill my soul. Now, folks, it's just that way. You would have done exactly the same thing. And that's exactly how we ought to be with the Word of God. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and in that law, he meditates day and night. I'm going to surprise you this morning and tell you that I am here to oppose Bible reading programs. He's here to do what? Oppose Bible reading programs? Yeah, I'm opposed to Bible reading programs now. Yeah, you mean you don't think you should read through the Bible on a regular basis? No, I think you should, but I'm just opposed to programs like that. Well, why are you opposed to programs like that? Because nobody ever knows what they've read. We're going to read through the Bible this year. We made a resolution to do it. Pastor asked us to do it. We, we resolved we're going to read it from Genesis to Maps this year. And we're going to do it if it kills us, and it probably will. And so we're going to read the Bible through. And so that means five chapters a day. Got to read five a day. And so we began to read Five chapters a day. So we pull up out here on Sunday morning. I'm getting out of my car. You're getting out of yours. We're walking to Sunday school. And I say, did you read your Bible reading this morning? And you say, sure did. Well, what did you read? Well, I read 1 Kings 1 to 5. That's good. What was it about? Uh, Kings? Good guess. <laughs> yeah. Uh, kings, but you don't know anything else about it. What good did it do for you to read it? Why read the Bible that way? I'm going to suggest that you read the Bible this year from the viewpoint of meditating on the law of the Lord day and night. You say, oh, wait a minute. In meditation, what those guys do, uh, clothed in the orange robes, uh, sitting in the lotus position somewhere in the far east, isn't that meditation? That's one kind of meditation, but that's not the kind of meditation that the Bible says you ought to do. What does it mean to meditate on the law of the Lord day and night? To meditate on it means that you read it and then spend the rest of the day thinking about it, praying over it, and seeing how this uniquely appeals and approaches your own soul. Now that is a very different matter. You will come away knowing it. Did you notice a while ago that I had memorized that verse about the wrath of God worketh not the righteousness of men? I hate that verse. I despise it. 
I didn't say I didn't believe it. I believe it is the absolute word of God. I just said it makes me very uncomfortable, that's all. And yet I memorized it. Why did I memorize it? I memorized it because I needed to meditate on it. I didn't just sit down and memorize it. No, I meditated on it and thought about it and applied it to my life and did so repeatedly until it stuck and I could never forget it again. And the word became valuable to me. I'm going to ask you this morning to make a commitment to become one who meditates on the law of the Lord day and night. In fact, very quickly in closing, let me show you what it will do for you if you meditate on the law of the Lord. It will do four things for you, and they're all mentioned right there in the text. Look at them. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of living water. Now you live in Texas, and so if we're going to drive west from here, get out into west Texas, we're going to be driving along, we're going to come to a bridge abutment, and it's going to say, this is the Red River. And you say, my, that's good, I've always wanted to see the Red River. I'm going to pull over here and get out and go look at it. And so you get out of your car and you go out in the middle of the bridge and you look down the river and you look and you look and there's no water. That's a river, huh? Yeah, that's a red river and it's got no water in it. Oh, how do you know it's a river? Well, you've got to stay there until it rains. And when it rains, it'll have some water in it, but the rest of the time... It doesn't have any water in it. And as a result of that, you don't see any tall trees in West Texas. There's a place out in Plainview, have you ever seen it, where right in the middle of town, there's a tree there, and they actually had to label it so that the kids growing up in the area would know that that's a tree. And it has a plaque on it that says, the tree. It actually has a tree. And, And so... The only way you get tall trees is if you have lots of water. So if we go over to the East Coast and we get in the Appalachia and we go down through there, they've got an abundance of rain and water. And so what they got? Tall, beautiful trees. Now, he says, if you want to be a strong tree, roots running deep into the ground, down to the water, you've got to have a perpetual source of sustenance and of water. And so the man who meditates on the law of God day and night, he's got roots going down to the water of God and his life is constantly blessed by the presence and the watering of God. That's the first thing it'll do for you if you meditate in the law of the Lord day and night. Let's look at the second thing real quickly. And uh, he should be like a tree planted by the rivers of living water, and it brings forth its fruit in its season. Now, I asked you a while ago, what can be done with Paige Patterson? I know a lot of you have wondered that across the years, and and, uh, there are a lot of folks that wonder about that. How in the world will he ever have the fruit of the Spirit? 
Well, he won't have the fruit of the Spirit unless the Spirit of God brings it forth. And the Spirit of God brings forth the fruit of the Spirit because he meditates in the law of the Lord day and night. When he meditates in the law of the Lord day and night, then gradually his life begins to show the fruit of the Holy Spirit. What a wonderful thing. Well, he'll be fruitful, okay? Well, let's see what else will happen to him. His leaf also shall not wither. Now, I'm a hunter, and I admit that, but I don't want you to fuss at me about it unless you're a vegetarian and never wear leather. And uh, then you can talk to me about it, but otherwise don't. Uh, The only difference between me and some other people is that I take my own food. And uh, so uh, you should try it sometime. And so anyway, um, if I go in the wintertime to Colorado to hunt, oh, it's quite an experience after the first snowstorms have come in and get out there in Colorado. You know how it is. First of all, there are a lot of trees that have lost their leaves. They're gone. And the tree is just standing there stark against the landscape. They're ugly. (laughs) Oh, my, limbs everywhere. Ugly trees. And yet, the very same storms that brought the ugly trees also had another kind of tree. We call them evergreen trees, don't we? And the evergreen trees don't lose their leaves and they don't change from that deep green color. And you look over there and there's the mighty evergreen. Its limbs are weighted down and bent toward the ground by the heavy snows that have come, but they're still green underneath. And how beautiful they are to look upon the contrast of that white, fresh-fallen snow on the top of that greenery of the evergreen. Oh, my goodness. What makes a difference? The evergreen stays green because God has planned it and made it that way. There's no difference in the storms. Storms in life come to believers and unbelievers. In fact... Sorry to have to tell you this, but if you've made a decision to follow Jesus, you've probably made a decision to have more storms than most folks do. You're probably going to have more trouble than most people do. And so the storms come on both the believer and the unbeliever, but the believer is an evergreen. The tougher the storm, the more beautiful his life. Did you ever know people like that? Did you know somebody who was fighting terminal cancer? Did you you ever known somebody that just had bad things happen to their whole family and yet it was just a pleasure to be around? You just liked being around. It was fun when you got to talk to them at church because they were always so effervescent with the presence of God and they just encouraged you. It was good just to be around them. They're evergreens. Yes, the storms came, but no, the storms didn't make any difference. They're still just like they always were. And so you're an evergreen. Well, one more thing. Notice what he says here, the last thing. Not only 
will uh, uh, they be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. Not only will they bring forth fruit, not only will they not wither, their leaves shall go on, but whatever they do will prosper. Now, I don't want you to go out here and misquote me. Don't you go out here and say Patterson preached a name it and claim it gospel, you know, and believe and drive a Mercedes. I didn't preach any such gospel. I don't believe that. But I'll tell you what I do believe. I do believe that God has promised to bless his word. And he blesses everything that is of eternal consequence to which you put your hand. Every Bible study you teach, every prayer for somebody that you offer, every soul that you point to faith in Jesus Christ, every bit of that is forever. The believer shall prosper. If you meditate on the law of the Lord, you shall prosper. Okay, I got to quit. It's time to quit. But notice one more thing. Now notice what he says about the ungodly. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Now, I think your pastor is a godly man. But if he really is, he will take all of you to the Holy Land. And uh, when you get to the Holy Land, uh, you'll do some unusual things. One day your pastor will come out, get on the bus, and he'll say, Today, we're going to do the unthinkable. We are going to Samaria. In Jesus' day, no Jew wanted to go to Samaria. As a matter of fact, if he ran into a Samaritan in the marketplace, he went home and took three baths, two to loosen it up, one to get it off. I mean, to you, it was a horrible thing to be a Samaritan. And Jesus must needs go through Samaria. Did you know it's the same way today after 2,000 years? That's Palestinian Liberation Organization territory. And nobody but an insane man goes through there. So I always take my people to Samaria when I go through there. It does a lot for their prayer lives. And so I take them through there just for the fun of it. And so your pastor will say, we're going to Samaria today. And while you're riding up through the Samaritan mountains, your pastor will say, now look out the window over there and notice that all of these mountaintops have one thing in common. None of them come to a point like a mountain ought to. They're all cut off some way. How did that happen and why did that happen? Well, that happened because they still harvest wheat in Samaria the same way they've done it for 4,000 years. Can you believe that? That's right. They bring all the wheat and they have cut down the mountain so there's a a flat top there on that mountain, and they're up on the mountain because they got to be up there where the wind currents can be felt, and it will blow the chaff away. And so that's why they're up on the wind current. Now, this will tell you that the Bible has all kinds of interesting things in it that you're going to miss if you're not careful, if you don't study your Bible. Gideon, in the Old Testament, is in a wine press threshing wheat. You can't 
fresh wheat in our wine press. That's the silliest thing I ever heard in my life. Nobody but a total idiot would do something like that. But Gideon is down there threshing uh, threshing wheat in the wine press. Why is he doing it? Because he is scared to death of his enemies. And while he's down there, the angel of the Lord comes to him and appears to him and says, Hail, thy mighty man of valor. And Gideon says, Who are you talking to? I'm scared to death down here in this wine press. Yeah, you see, all that makes sense again. When you understand, you've got to thresh wheat up on the mountain. Now, what they do is they get up there on the wheat and they bring the animals with the sharp hooves, the oxen, the donkeys, and they walk them around on it and they break open the husk from the uh, uh, wheat itself, from the kernel of the wheat. And once that's all broken open, it's done, but it's all lying there together. You still can't make bread. You can take it and you can try, but you're not going to like the consequence of it. And so what do you have to do? Well, fortunately, in Samaria, they have women's liberation. Now the men retire. They go over there and sit in a little circle, and they serve Turkish coffee, little Demitas cups about that big, and that plus four gallons of water will make it just about right. And they drink coffee over there together, and they discuss the serious problems of the whole world and solve all the problems of the world. And while they're doing that, women get out on the press, on the, on the uh, threshing floor, and they have some interesting-looking shovels in their hand, which we call, interestingly enough, you know, anybody? What do you call it? Pitchforks. And why do you call it a pitchfork? Because that's what you do with it. The ladies gather up the wheat and the chaff, and they pitch it up in the air. That's right. And the kernel, which is heavier than the husk, falls back to the earth, but the wind up there on the mountaintop throws and blows away that part of the wheat that is useless, the chaff. And God says that's the way an ungodly man is. Ungodly man's a lightweight. And the wind of God blows away the chaff. But the wheat falls back to the press, and the women gather it up in those bushel baskets, And they get over there, and they make their delicious flat bread on those unique ovens that they have. You'll get to see all that when your pastor takes you up there. And so it's interesting to be there and remember that this is what Jesus used for an example. How long has it been since you meditated on the law of the Lord? Do you know... I'd rather you read one verse a day and only one verse a day. I'm happy for you to read as much more as you can or will. I'm happy for you to read five chapters a day. But I'd rather you read one verse a day and meditate on it all day long. Think about it and ask how this applies to your life. 
I'd rather you read one that way than to read five chapters and have no idea what it says. Blessed is the man who does those things. Would you bow with me, please? Every head bowed, every eye closed. Just a moment, I'm going to voice our prayer to God, and then we're going to stand and sing a hymn of invitation and appeal, as is our tradition. Your precious pastor is going to be right here at the front waiting to receive you. Listen to me, friend. If you are here this morning and you've never received Christ as Savior, understand that hearing the Word of God starts right where it ought to start with hearing the Word of Salvation. And God promises that to him who comes to him, he will never cast him out. If today you have never come to Christ, but you'd be willing to do so today, I pray that that will happen to you, that you'll receive the Lord Jesus as your Savior. And if so, you just slip on out in a moment when we begin to sing and come. Your pastor's done this a thousand times. He knows exactly what to do, and he's going to pray with you, give you some material to begin your walk with Christ. You come. But today I've spoken primarily to believers about meditating on the law of the Lord day and night. I wonder today if something about the message has sunk down into your own soul. I'm wondering if it has occurred to you what meditating on the law of the Lord day and night will do for a man, will do for a woman. And would you be willing to say, You know, I've never actually tried that, but I see the wisdom of it. I see the command in the Bible to do it. And if God will help me, I would be willing to try it for 30 days. I'd be willing 30 days to try each day to read one verse from the Bible and take it with me all day long wherever I go. Meditate on it day and night. If that's you that God is speaking to this morning, I want you to just slip out into the aisle and come here to the front, maybe kneel for a moment and tell God about it. It's not necessary to speak to me or the pastor. Just between you and God, just tell him, I'll try that, Lord God. Man, I'll do that. To have the Bible come alive in my life, to have it bless my life like that, I'm willing to do that. I'll try that for 30 days. Would you be willing to do it? Could be the greatest thing that ever happened in your Christian life. I pray you do it right now. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the Word of God, which is a light to our path and a lamp to our path, to our path that we not struggle in the way and fall. And Lord, I pray for every person here this morning who has never trusted Jesus as Savior. That this may be the moment when Christ becomes more than just a word, actually becomes a person that we know personally. Lord, grant it this day. And Father, we today as believers have come wanting to be fed. Lord, I've done the best I know how to do, but it has to be what you do if it's to be effective. And I pray for many this morning who never tried meditating on the law of the Lord day and night, and I pray that your will will be done in their hearts today. 
God grant them making a commitment to try to do this for a year or for 30 days just to try it and see what God does. So, Lord, we commit this hour to you now, and as we sing this hymn of invitation, we make our decisions for Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. We invite you to like us on Facebook or visit our website, www.bearcreekbaptist.org. If you're not a member of another church, we would like to invite you to join us in person and get to know us and let us get to know you. Have a great week and may the Lord richly bless you.